0: Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Fife.
1: In the podcast Spiritual and Sexual Development and the Power of Lipstick, Jennifer talks about the way in which she had learned to view men and women in her early years.
0: I I did have an idea of a God that knew me and loved me. The only problem was that the God that I had in my heart and mind saw men as being more important than women, Mm. because that was part of my faith tradition. It was also part of my parental system where my father, because he provided and was the leader and was a church leader, made the rules much more than my mom did. And so I believe God loved me, but that men were the gold standard and women were the silver, you know? So you felt uh, a little bit second rate in God's eyes yeah, because of Yeah, no question. Gender? Because of my gender. Wow. And I grew up, you know, that yeah. men, men had authority and women did not. And women would defer to men and men should be loving and caregiving and not be abusive right. and all that. But so, right, I yes, mean, right. but you were weaker.
1: This is Sheree Phelps, and in this interview today, I talk with Jennifer about how to confront and navigate some of our faith traditions that place men in a position as slightly more important than women. Okay, so I was listening recently to a podcast where you were talking about the idea that you had of God in your younger years, and you said that you felt that God saw men as being more important to women. And I do think that even though there has been progress in our culture in our society and within the church over the last few years, I still feel like, um, I mean, do you you see traditions and ideas that continue to lead both men and women to take a hold of that false idea that God views men as being more important than women?
0: I mean, yes and and no. I mean, the the yes part is that... um, even though I think we have shifted in our language. You know, when I was growing up, I had Sunday school teachers who were teaching that polygamy was a part of the highest order of the celestial kingdom, and that it was a higher law, that it was the ideal, essentially. I had also, you know, there was much more overt, like being a wife was a kind of calling, a role. The language, you know, there was even articles then about you know, the sacred role of being a wife, and that is that you're supporting the kind of larger efforts of husbands and men and church leaders. So we were much more unapologetic then about that in the temple. Similar, there was this un, unequivocal kind of recognition of that hierarchy. We've taken a lot of steps to soften that and to... um elevate explicitly the role of women in our um, in our community and the culture you know and i think those things are all valuable Um, i think that if we consider the priesthood to mean that men have more authority than women and by authority i mean the ability to author what is true then that's then that still works against equality because you can't have a marriage of equals if there is the idea that one is more right than the other, one is stronger than the other, one is closer to God than the other. Now, we do take a lot of pains to say things like women are actually more spiritual than men. Men are the problem, right? Uh, men need the priesthood because they're so fundamentally broken. I mean, we do a lot of these kinds of things to attempt to level the playing field. And I I'm actually I, I don't think that women need to have the priesthood per se, but women need an equal um, voice in terms of their ability to shape the community and to author what is true. And so it's okay to have different roles, I think, as long as there is that fundamental level playing field. And I think, you know, in some families women are always right and the men are more, you know, deferential to the women in other families, you know, men are the ones who tend to have more gravitas and more power in the family. So I think that, you know, how it is culturally is a little bit unclear, but I think the more explicit we are about the, the um, equality of masculine and feminine, the better. And the more that we need our theology of a mother and father in heaven to be recognized, because in as much as we're blind to the feminine, you know, to not talk about her is also it 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 opens us up to see her as less than in need of protection, you know, because she can't handle things. So the meanings we project onto even not speaking of her are still important because they are shaping how we think about what it is to be feminine. And so I think in an ideal Zion-like community, there's a recognition of difference and contribution, even if it's in different roles. That, that's no problem because par- part of understanding what it is to be Zion-like or to really be one with one another is to not devalue or overvalue based on the particular you can't say that the mouth is more important than the than the kneecap in the body of Christ like we all have a role and it's all valuable and contributes and we can't we can't we can't deny that if we're thinking truthfully so people may have different roles but there can't be a devaluation of contribution and thinking that to be a woman and to be a good woman is to dumb yourself down or to be deferential necessarily. So I think we've made progress. I still think we have progress to make.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned in there, you said for there to be more gender inequality, does that mean women need the priesthood? And I don't know that that's necessarily the answer because I could still see women having the priesthood. And as long as those ideas are still alive, women could still have the priesthood and there could still be gender inequality.
0: Yes. I mean, I, I, mean, I agree with that. I think. But on the other hand, how we explicitly talk about what it is to be female and male has impact. So again, for me, it has more to do with, is, you know, I worked with people in my dissertation research that were talking about, you know, my husband's the leader of the home, but in effect, you know, one person in particular, she made more money than her husband did. They made decisions jointly. He was involved in childcare, as much as she was involved in earning. I'm not saying this is the, the right or, you know order of a family. I'm just saying the reality was is that they were truly partners and there was equal say in their decision-making. They would pray and fast together about any decision that he would make or she would make in terms of career. So it doesn't matter if she called him the leader of the home, in my opinion, because they were partners truly and effectively. I had other people in the same dissertation research who considered themselves feminists. Even their husbands might have called themselves feminists. But in reality, there was a hierarchy in the couple. And so it doesn't matter if they were using the language of equals, they weren't equal. And so I'm not denying, of course, the, how we talk about this as a community has impact and it matters. But also how people think about who they are. You know, the women in my research that thrived in marriage, both sexually and emotionally, didn't buy in to a gender inequality idea. They gave themselves significance. They saw themselves as mattering. Their sexuality mattered. They were prepared to be full partners psychologically. And so, even if you know they valued the law of chastity because they saw it as something that they wanted in their lives, but they weren't staying virginal so they could earn the love of a man someday, they were making that choice because it was a reflection of who they wanted to be and how they wanted to relate to their sexuality and what they wanted to create in marriage and family life. So this sort of self-authoring was fundamental to their way of living. And it's the self-authoring piece that culturally we need to do a better job of. Because if you're learning like I learned that you need a man to tell you what's right, and you need to lean into his r- world and support his self authorship, then it's then a fundamental meaning that, if you take it seriously, will compromise you and the marriage and the man, even because for a man to see himself that way also limits him. I feel like the challenge in creating more equality within marriages and within
1: the church and within society is really understanding what equality looks like. I think. Mm-hmm. If we're truly equal with differences, as you're saying, you know, we're, we're differences with different qualities and maybe that means we're playing different roles and in, in the big scheme that might not necessarily have. I don't think that means that necessarily for there to be equality, then we have to have exactly the equal amount of right. female and male leadership callings and, you know, the exact right. same number of men and women speaking in general conferences, praying in general conference. Right. I think that's important. I think it can like right. expose the inequality. Yes.
0: But I mean, what? Right. sometimes an immature understanding of partner or collaborative is you have to do the same amount of housework as I do. Uh, you know, we need to make the same amount of money or something, or there's not a collaborative arrangement. And that's just simply not true. It's about a genuine valuing of the contributions. When um, I was first married, I made the decision to stay home with my kids for a number of years, and my husband was the sole breadwinner. But because those were both deliberately chosen, that we both felt that that was the right way to divvy up the tasks of what we were about together, it was collaborative. You know, I wasn't there because I had no choices or I should be there. I wasn't doing any of that inside my head. It was like of of what we're trying to create, this seems like the best division of labor. And because we were both choosers in that and both valuing of what the other contributed, it was a fully equal partnership, even though ostensibly what my husband was doing might get more acknowledgement externally than what I was doing. And so, you know, that's, it's not about division of labor per se, that's a simple-minded view although I'm not saying that those things don't matter, you know, in the sense of like sometimes women are working and coming home and doing all the tasks in the household. And it's a kind of unseen um, repressive reality that is often the more blind you are to it, the more you can keep the comforts in, you know, the male position of just doing what you do rather than really working collaboratively as a partnership. So um but yeah, it's get, we can be simple-minded sometimes in our interpretation of equal, but sometimes that's a place to start, because if you feel like you can't ask for equal contribution, or you know you're, somehow you're breaking the rules um, by asking for more, you know, that, then that will keep you blind to the ability to create something truly collaborative. You need to know that you really can. You know, for example, my husband, prior to me staying home, had dropped down to part-time and was home with our oldest child while I finished my internship, my full-time internship. He was fully willing to do it. So just like that kind of awareness that we do have the flexibility, we do have the willingness within us, it has a different meaning than if, you know, when, when I chose to stay home. I really did believe it was fully um, Fully chosen, that it was collaborative um, for both of us.
1: When I was listening to that podcast, the Spiritual and Sexual Development podcast, I found something extremely interesting. I mean, as you were talking about your younger years, how you felt, how you were seeing kind of this higher value for men than women, mm-hmm. um, I found it really interesting the way that you approached that. Because mm. you talked about how you started asking questions within yourself like you were yeah. asking yourself saying is this the world i want to replicate like right. what is good what is true do i believe in this idea is this really who god is are women really less than men like right and i think that's extremely valuable that first or maybe simultaneously you were wrestling with the idea inside yourself and i wonder if sometimes we kind of skip that process yeah and just move into changing trying to change the system i think there's yeah. A lot of value in, I mean, like you said, you, you've you seen people who call themselves feminists, but yet maybe are still acting like they're, but yeah. still hold on to this idea that men are more important than women.
0: Right. They still are living out a certain belief and maybe can't see it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it is important to really first start with the beliefs that we hold within ourselves around.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think You know, when I was growing up, nobody was, well, I shouldn't say nobody, probably people were out in the world, but in the world that I lived in, uh, nobody was really asking those questions. I wasn't aware of anybody asking those questions about women's role. I think I was wrestling with it within my own perception of what was happening and what impact it was having and whether or not I wanted to be a part of it. And so, you know, I think I grew up in a family that actually helped me to be able to do that because there was sort of a paradox in my family, I think, the more I've been thinking about it lately, which is that on the one hand, the boys had the power. I had four older brothers. They all had the priesthood. My dad was a bishop, a state president, all those things. So there was this kind of, my brothers passed the sacrament. They gave blessings. They baptized and things like that. Um, So there was a, and my mom, you know, there was an unequivocal idea that the priesthood was a big deal and the boys had it. And I even thought this as a little girl that God must really love our family because there were five, I had a younger brother too. There were five boys and that's just like a horrifying idea that I actually, my little mind thought that, but it did. It was like, wow, I'm kind of in a special family with all these boys. So the, so it, <laughs> there was this kind of um, idea that because I was the sidekick there that, that gave me a special role. <laughs> but the other paradox in it was that in some ways there was little expected of me as a girl. And, and that actually gave me a kind of freedom because I felt like my dad was in some ways harder on my brothers. Uh, they were a little bit more of a threat in some respects to his authority. I mean, it makes him sound abusive. He really wasn't. But there was a more antagonistic relationship between my dad and my brothers where I was softer, like um, let, not a threat, just a girl, so to speak. Okay? And because I was that, it, in some ways, it allowed me more room to create and figure out who I was and what I wanted. There was a kind of inflation in it. Because I think in some ways my dad favored me because I wasn't a threat, because I was a nice girl. And so, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking about the psychology of for me, there was a lot of downward pressure, but there wasn't a, a kind of covert upward pressure. And I think my family also did not, they weren't very ideological. Like that is to say, while well, we were very invested in the church and in living it well. My parents didn't say, oh, you must think this or believe this or anything. So there was, a, there was room for me. I think I had enough. I knew I was loved and valued and had a place in my family. And there was also room for me to think without feeling like it was going to threaten my belonging. So I think the reason why I want to say it a little bit is because I think there was the support for me being able and allowing myself the room to think about it because I work with some people that grow up in families that to disbelieve or to question is to lose your place in the family. And so they don't have enough room to think. And a lot of times when they start to kind of push against it, they're pushing against many layers of demand to be something or conform to something. And so they have a lot of anger about it. because they've felt so constrained by the the demand to be a specific thing. And so they may be trying to fend it off psychologically by, you know, like perhaps people in my dissertation research, claiming a feminist ideal because they are trying to solve something, but still not realizing they're still caught in the idea that I have to be something for someone else to really matter. I remember as a um, girl thinking I was really glad I wasn't a boy. Actually, I really did. <laughs> yeah. So even though I thought they were all, you know, had God's favor a little more than me, I also could see there was more demand on boys and, men, you know, like yeah. to provide, to be strong. And I could get around that. I didn't didn't have the same expectation.
1: Yeah, I was talking to a friend last night. She had just moved. She's in a new ward. She's in a different state. She's outside of Utah, which I think is significant mm-hmm. because, yeah. and uh, she basically came home <clears throat> from after, you know, her first experience in this new ward and just said, like, I, I'm really frustrated. Like, I don't want to be mad and critical all the time, mm-hmm. but it just seems so obvious to me the way in which, you know, men and women are treated differently. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, how, how can you deal with that? Like if you, maybe are seeing it, you're seeing the the differences, how do you face it? How do you see it with maybe Mm -hmm. integrity and strength without like going blind to it, but with all also not just sitting back and finding reasons to be resentful and, like you know, like looking for reasons to like, just validate your anger.
0: Yeah. How do you deal with it in a, Well, I think initially that's okay. I mean, because initially when you start waking up to a problem or you see something you don't like, you're going to have feelings about it and a recognition that there's something that's not fair. And I don't think um, people should be too, too afraid of that or too anxious about that because it's part of clarifying your mind that this isn't working. This is a problem. Where I think sometimes people get stuck is that they see the mistreatment outside of themselves, or they see the devaluing of them outside of themselves. And the very human and tempting thing is to say, I've got to get power from that external source. I need to Get that person to acknowledge I'm okay. So, for example, when I'm working with people in marriages and and the person who's been in the one down position, let's just say the wife for the sake of the ease of this conversation, and she's recognizing she's been in a devalued position. She's been supporting the aims of her husband, kind of deferring to what he thinks, feels, and wants. And then she kind of starts to wake up to that and is upset about it because she's given up too much of her life. She's been fulfilling kind of what she was taught as the ideal, but she's not happy and she's full of resentment because she's given up, she's disappearing in her own life in the form of serving everybody else's interests and desires. And so when someone wakes up to that, they don't like it, of course, and it's, um, it's right to not like it. It's right to say we have a problem,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Because you know, to, to forge a self, to be at peace with yourself, if you've been working to support the desires and dreams and and wants of others, um, that's not going to. If that's all you've done, right? That is to say, if that's how you've tried to be a self, you're going to feel limited and frustrated by that. So the f- initial Um, unhappiness and rejection is important. But it's not the husband that's going to give you equality. It's ultimately you that will. And that's important because while you want to wake up to it and you may want to be talking, okay, in church about what you think needs to be better or in a marriage about what needs to change, And there's nothing, it is always good to restructure realities, right? So like women getting the vote, women being able to drive, right? Women being able to own property. These are a big deal because you can't have real equality if you don't have structural support for it. If you have a structural devaluation of women that forces women to be dependent on men, right? Or if you have ideology that supports the the deference of women's minds to men's minds, okay, that's a problem. That said, especially when it's at the level of psychological, the real work is on the inside of the one down person. It's dealing with herself, how she may participate in devaluing her voice, how she may participate in folding into others as a way to manage her own self doubt. And so, if you keep the locus of control outside of you, it really limits what you can sort out within yourself and whether or not you really will be free. Because if we unwittingly keep it external, we are always still referencing the outward authority, not the inner authority.
1: So I feel like trying to sort through cultural and religious ideas about gender roles can be challenging at times because it's it's so much a part of the air we breathe that it's just we accept it as the way things ought to be. Like you were talking about, you know, women getting the right to vote. I mean, when that yes. was happening, I mean, there were women who were against it, and I think partly because it was just the way things were. So it That's feels right. hard, it feels like to a threat, challenge. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But I think religious statements that saying things like the role of the woman is to care and nurture for the children, and the role of the man is to provide, right. can be complicated because then it feels like this is ordained by God, and therefore it's the higher yes. way to govern your life. Like,
0: yes, I agree with you
1: how do you sort through gender roles? How do you make sense of gender roles? How do you, what's a better way to think about that?
0: Well, okay. I have maybe a couple of ways of thinking about it. First is that in the scheme of people's psychological and moral development, that in our, in the earlier stages, we need structures. We need, this is good. This is bad. This is, You know what it is to be female, this is what it is to be male. We need, we benefit from absorbing inherited ideas about who you are because we have to borrow a sense of self on some level. And so we're very safety oriented in the beginning and belonging oriented shortly after that. And we're very externally focused. That is, we're looking outside of ourselves to borrow, to, to learn the culture in which we're embedded and to figure out how to belong and be safe within that culture. And so, you know, the church institution serves a very important function in teaching principles and rules and ideas about how to be a good person. And it's, flawed right it's not perfect but it still has real value to have a structure because you at least can sort of limit your choices down to Mm -hmm. you know operating within these guardrails and that does allow you to figure out who you are to kind of internalize principles and ideas one of the liabilities that we have culturally and I think all groups on some level have, okay, is that we make validation of ourselves the most important thing. So we are looking, what I mean by that is we are looking to control each other, that we are afraid of people having too much liberty or freedom because we fear it may undermine our own sense of security, undermine our sense of self, right? So just do it at the level of a marriage. A lot of times what's happening in marriage is that um, someone is complaining that his wife doesn't have enough self-confidence and autonomy at the same time that he unwittingly undermines her confidence and undermines her autonomy. So that is he wants a wife that's self-confident and comfortable in herself and comfortable in her body in as much as it reinforces him. But because he doesn't want her to actually be free, because maybe she wouldn't choose the likes of him, he unwittingly will undermine and erode her confidence and keep her sexuality being measured by him. And so we do this in the church all the time. We want people to think for themselves and to get their own testimony in as much as it reinforces our testimony. (laughs) Uh Yes, You think the way I think, do the things. So a lot of our gender narratives are basically, they're a dependent system. I'm working on a book right now and I've written all about this in the chapters on men and women is there is this be what reinforces me. And I don't just mean be women, be what reinforces men. There's also what reinforces women. So We, on some level, you know, we have been taught to be Cinderella as as a woman, as women, you know, the Mm -hmm. idea that there's a prince out there that's going to provide you a life and ride up on a horse and tell you, you matter and you're beautiful and give you a castle if he's a good man. And like, who doesn't like that idea? I mean, I don't know. I like it, you know, because also (laughs) he's sort of the one that's protecting you from the big bad world. And they're just going to love and adore you. And so there is like men like the idea that I'm the strong one. I'm the able one. I'm the one who's going to be needed by her. And therefore she'll never turn away from me. And she'll just, you know, want to have sex with me all the time because she is grateful for me. (laughs) That's the fantasy. And for women, there's often, that's a, that's a compelling idea. You give me a life, you protect me. So a lot of times women are more complicit in that one down than they realize because we want the perks of it. We want the perceived security in it. And so we kind of sell the idea that you'll each be needed in a way. You'll each have a role. That way you can earn your love. You'll be beautiful and desirable and deferential and sweet. And you'll have his children and you'll raise raise them up and and be this precious person in his life that he's so grateful for. And, you know, he'll be needed because he's strong and able and protective and confident and knows what's right and wrong. And, and those are the those are the ideas that we like. We like that idea because it it makes us feel secure and it makes us feel needed and it makes us feel protected in the world. And so we're very good at promoting ideals in which we imagine will be needed and that we can get reinforcement for mattering. Well, the problem with it, of course, is that it's too needy. It's too false. Yeah. Men are not just protective and strong, fearless and clear-headed sexually confident they're not (laughs) they are after all human (laughs) beings with a lot of self-doubt and so men learn to hide and a lot of times when these men are hiding they feel lots of anxiety and turmoil internally that they don't feel they can share without blowing up the picture that their wife wants to have of them so they're more prone to mask who they are to be unable to talk about their feelings perhaps they're going to porn or something like that as a way to kind of regulate their feelings or express the sexuality they think they 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 can't be a good man and have and when that blows up as it often does right then because the wife finds out or something then the whole picture of who are you and who am i like i guess i'm not enough as the woman i was i thought i was going to be you know the one that would attract you enough and apparently i'm failing at that and apparently you're failing too because you're not crappiest prince I've ever seen, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, there, there's this sort of disillusionment and women are much stronger than they are often pressured to be. I remember thinking, you know, to, to have a man like you, you have to dumb it down a bit. I mean, at BYU, I was told by some men that to get a PhD like actually felt like a threat to them. And so because they'd learned how to be a man in a very limited way. And so while we may like, and and okay, and then here's the other part of it is that I think there is some legitimacy to the gender division that we're talking about, meaning many women do want to be able to have a family and be able to lean upon their partner to be a provider during that period of, of childbirth. And when these children are highly dependent upon her, So there is cultural and social value in many of these roles. They aren't inherently a problem. The problem is when we, as you are pointing to, Sheree, are being told that this is the way God wants you to do it. It's the only way. It's the right way. Even if you don't feel like that's right for you, you need to be in that dependent position. You need to silence your own thinking and be dependent. Or you need to silence your own fears on the masculine side or insecurities and pretend to be strong. When we're in that validation dependency and we find the, and we have the idea that this is how God wants it to be, it does limit us unnecessarily because we can really value if we're teaching people at a kind of lower level of development, it limits how far we go as a group. Because we can value the masculine and the feminine. We can value collaboration in couples. We can value family life and partners working together to create strong families doing different roles. Like We can language this better. We can value masculine and feminine gifts that both re- reside within, we, we, men and women have both masculine and feminine within them, and we can value those qualities. More overtly and equally, and still, and actually do a better job of showing a higher mind in God, not a God that just wants people to fulfill roles. We can yeah. actually talk about <laughs> masculine and feminine collaboration and intimacy as our ideals because I believe they're a better understanding of what our theological ideals actually are.
1: Earlier, you were kind of talking about the idea. Of how we keep like the divine feminine, the the mother, uh, a heavenly mother, silent, and how that might play a role in, well, how it plays a role in kind of the gender differences that are problematic. So Michelle Thornley painted a picture titled "Mother of All Living," and it's a oil painting of Eve.
0: Yeah.
1: And she talked about Michelle talked about how she painted Eve to look Latina so that she and other Latina could connect to Eve. She said, I wanted to see Eve as myself and as my ancestors. So I wanted to paint something with a definite Mexican influence. And I think there's so much value in being able to relate or connect to a role model through some commonality, such as gender or race Mm -hmm. and I do think there is an unfortunate loss or disadvantage that women experience when they're unable to relate or connect with a divine female God or even more female role models like within the scriptures. I wonder if you can just talk about that idea a little bit.
0: Well, absolutely. I think that I wrote about this a little in my dissertation was, you know, that when you have to identify with a male God, um there is a there is a sense of of not knowing yourself right and i think christ is set up to be in many respects a masculine and feminine ideal in the sense of embodying many of the highest forms of masculine capacity and feminine capacity such as compassion and warmth and and wisdom and so on. So I think that we can we can find a lot of our ideals embodied in Christ, for example. But I think that to not see ourselves in the divine, literally, except that we're in the back somewhere, you know? <laughs> Whether or not we're intending to do that, I think it's the impact. And I've talked about this on a podcast before, maybe it was even on the one you were listening to, but I remember in a soci- when sociology of women class at BYU, we sang an early hymn, and I don't know if it was an LDS hymn or another hymn, I, I don't remember, but in which there was an acknowledgement of Mother God. And I cried singing it. Like, like, it like, made me realize that I'd been longing for her The whole time and hadn't even known it right and so it was like a kind of coming home to a need within me and it wasn't to dismiss father god right it is like to recognize the divinity within the masculine and the feminine to have it be more explicit around a kind of ideal of partnership of masculine and feminine to see ourselves in divinity, not just as, I mean, it's highly problematic, especially too, as a feminine ideal, you see yourself as in support of the masculine. Well, then that shapes the kind of relationship to, to the notion of a father in heaven. So I just think it has meaning And I think I can see why church leadership is protective because just whenever there's change, there's the fear that we're going to lose something important. We don't want to lose the good we have. And so I do really have some compassion for the pressures that church leadership are managing and what they're trying to protect. Um, but we do have a beautiful theology of parents in heaven. And I think a stronger clarity about the strength and capacity of the feminine that I think the more we can reflect it in our ideals, the stronger we'll be.
1: Our theology definitely makes room for a mother in heaven. Mm-hmm. And there's just, there's this cultural... I do think it's shifting, but I think there has been a cultural and religious taboo in talking about a mother in heaven. Yes. I mean, I remember when they changed the young woman theme to say, you know, instead of we are daughters of a heavenly father, we are daughters of heavenly parents. Yes. Which I thought was wonderful, except I still struggle with this idea that whenever we refer to a mother in heaven, it's, we refer to her as there are, you know, we have parents in heaven that she's always coupled with. Yeah with God. And I don't, I mean, why, why do you think there is such a struggle to make room in our religious conversations when she's, when there is room in the theology?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly have a long tradition around father in heaven. I mean, the God of the old Testament, new Testament, it's very masculine And so on the one hand, there's just this, what do we know about her? And are we going to go in the right direction? And are we going to just project all of our limited ideas of the feminine onto mother in heaven? And, and are we going to make a mess of it? So I, I think that's, that's one possible concern, and perhaps a fair one. I also think that going back to some of the earlier things I was saying around our desire to control each other, you know, in a lot of the work that I do in couples is that men are often much more ambivalent about the feminine thriving than they recognize. I was working with a couple recently in which he started to confront how much he would take in the marriage and take sexually to manage something in himself. And even though he didn't like the sex and he never felt desired and she was struggling to be responsive sexually, he would still kind of go in and and get that kind of sex because it kept him feeling like the strong one. It kept him feeling like the one who didn't have the sexual anxieties. And so he would just do it like keeping her down without realizing it actually. And thinking she was the problem who struggled with self-esteem and sexual comfort. Then, you know, after he started doing my men's course, started to see himself as a taker. He started recognizing that he was not very loving sexually, even though he told himself for years he was. And so he started to kiss her and be with her with a lot more heart. And love her through just the way he kissed her, even when she had refused him sexually. And he just kissed her with a lot of love in it. And he was doing this deliberately and differently. And the meaning suddenly changed within him. He started to see himself differently. And she experienced that kiss very differently. Like it wasn't about taking or getting. It was about being with her. My my whole point in saying this story, I'm I'm, is that (laughs) like getting into the story maybe more than I need to, is that what actually started to happen is that as he started to stop taking, he became acutely insecure. He felt so insufficient relative to her. She started orgasming all the time now. Okay. Yeah. Meaning she she could feel the sort of judgment and superiority get challenged within him. And so she was freer to thrive sexually, emotionally with him because she wasn't always operating underneath this downward pressure. But what was so shocking to him was all the insecurity he'd been sitting on top of that was masked by keeping her as the focus or keeping her underneath. So this is my way, long way of saying, psychologically, we do this as human beings right? And men have been taught that's the way to feel like a man is to have someone slide underneath you, have a woman slide underneath you. You feel better than them, stronger than them. A lot of good men that get socialized into that idea. So the idea of feminine thriving feels scary. Like, well, who am I then? What's my role with you? Do I even have a role? Another thing I think we struggle with in the church is that women tend to be the ones who stay active in the church. And so, if we don't have a meaningful role for men, are we going to lose all the men? Right? Is, is it already too feminine? Maybe is the question that some may have. And what I think, though, is that we we cultivate more feminine dependency. that's part of its appeal than feminine thriving. It's not just one or the other, but but there's a difference between masculine and feminine thriving and dependency, which I think as a people because we're we're wired that way that's how we think we recreated in our church culture
1: yeah well jennifer thank you thank you for this conversation i always appreciate hearing your thoughts i i really appreciate the way in which you approach life of trying to come from a place of strength and integrity yes and dealing with complicated and difficult issues yes
0: I mean, exactly. It's the balance of being able to see things as they are and not go blind to them, not pretend that there aren't destructive or problematic things, but not lose our strength by just living in anger towards them, meaning how do we find our strength in the face of those limitations and create better? And that's always harder, but that's where... find our freedom and our peace
1: yeah definitely thank you
0: you're welcome thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed today's episode we ask that you please rate review and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from dr jennifer's work